so tonight I will be seated, God willing, in the gymnasium at South Medford High School watching the incredible matchup of the JV South Medford High School basketball team and whoever it is that they are playing, which I have no idea. And the reason I'll be watching is not simply or merely for the incredible action that the JV team gives us. <laughs> and not just because there are thousands of seats available because not very many other people will be there. But the reason I'll be there is because I want to be proud of my daughter who is a cheerleader at South Medford for the JV team as a freshman. And so I will cheer her on as a freshman she is. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing right now. Oh, I don't mean he's sitting in a gymnasium watching a JV game. Although that might be included somehow. But I mean Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, cheering us on. See, when we think about Jesus ever living to make intercession for us, we ought not to picture, as my dad has pointed out so well over the years, that Jesus is pleading with God, that he is trying to build your case that he is trying to defend you. No, he is seated at the right hand, meaning the work is done. It is finished. He is so done. It is so closed, the cases, that he isn't pacing, walking. You know, interesting in court, right? when the lawyer is ready to make the case or it's his or her turn to to describe to attend to to articulate their point their part of the court case the lawyer doesn't stay seated does she or he the lawyer gets up to make the case, we have an attorney. Our defense doesn't even stand up. He is seated. As we worship him, he is seated. As the angels worship him, he is seated. That's how complete and finished the case is for you. You are not making your case to God. You might be feeling as though you're making a case to your spouse or your parents or your neighbor or your boss, but you are not making your case to God. Through Christ, your case has already been made. Without Christ, you have no case to make. You're toast, 
and so am I. Now that is the gospel. That's what it means when it is finished. Jesus came to teach, yes, to minister, absolutely, but also to finish the work. Listen, there were 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the birth of Jesus. 2,000 years from the birth of Jesus until now. Which means it's got to be soon that he comes back and that he is here again. And yet, First Peter says in the last days there will be scoffers that will say, oh, the Lord is not returning. Well, that's the mentality of scoffers, no doubt. But when I think of 2,000 years, not only that separated Abraham from Jesus, but Jesus until now, I think any moment he is coming again. Let's look at the work, the priesthood of Jesus through a man named, you got this, Melchizedek. We will right when we get back.
Now, there was most definitely a certain security in going to the temple, even if you were a Christian in the first century, of heading to the temple for the purpose of sacrifice. Because there at the temple, there was the Sabbath candles and the breaking of bread and traditional prayers. So there was a certain state of security in the traditional aspects of the law and the temple. And that was pulling these Christians in that direction. Initially, they had received the simplicity of Christ as the fulfillment of everything in the temple. But as time went on, perhaps they began to get restless and they began to go back to the temple as a means to relate to God. And the book of Hebrews is all about how that doesn't work. For the temple has been fulfilled. All of the sacrifices, the breaking of the bread, the lighting of the incense, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest has all been fulfilled by Christ Jesus when he died and he rose again from the dead. And so the book of Hebrews is simply saying what you need to enter into God's presence is no longer animal sacrifices and ordinances, no longer certain days of the year, but now all you need is faith. No props to lean on, just trusting in the Word of God. And in order to secure that for you and me, God had to go outside of the Levitical priesthood, which was corrupt, understandably, for it was as Beautiful as it was, over time, it became corrupted by humanity, by people like me and you. And so Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, didn't he? Remember that? Calling it a den of thieves because he was ushering in a new priesthood. Let's read about this priesthood in our text as we pick up where we left off. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, not Salem, Oregon, although he's the king there too. We're talking Jerusalem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother 
or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There's your priest, the writer is saying. Not a Levite, in fact, of no dissension, because he had no father or mother. He has no genealogy, we read, for he is a picture, to say the least, of Jesus Christ. See, it says, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. To say the least, he resembles Jesus. If not, as many would say, my dad says, very likely he could be Jesus himself in what we call a, you know this, a Christophany. Those Old Testament pictures and references to the New Testament one we call, we know as Jesus the Christ. Now we read that this Melchizedek was able to be both king and priest of Jerusalem. Remember the story? When Abraham comes back from an incredible stealth guerrilla attack against five different kings who had overtaken not just the region, but had overtaken his nephew Lot and had captured Lot and his family. So Abraham taking a little over 300 men was able to set the captives free. And upon returning from that battle, he encounters Melchizedek who comes outside the city gates of Jerusalem and Abraham bows to him, we are told. And Melchizedek furnishes Abraham with bread and wine. This is the book of Genesis, my friends. See, there could be no other besides Melchizedek, king and priest. A couple did try. You know their stories, right? A couple had of kings had the moxie, if you would, to try to be priests as well. And it did not end well for either of them. Saul. Saul set the ignition. Saul is the one who made the sacrifice before heading into battle. And because of that, the kingdom was taken from him. And Uzziah, who otherwise was a good and godly king, somehow got so full of himself, he decided to go into the holy place and light the incense. He wanted to be even more than he was. And he was already someone. As a result, he comes down with leprosy. Remember that? Only one could be both a king and a high priest. And that would be Melchizedek and the one that he was picturing, which would be Jesus Christ, king and priest, king, because he rules. He's on the throne, king, 
because he's the monarch, he's majesty. Wherever he's the king, there will be absolute sovereignty of God. I can't wait till Jesus returns and comes again. But not just king, but also priest. Priest. He finished the, patri- the, the, the work of a priest, the priesthood. He made the sacrifice. He's a king who makes the sacrifice. He's also the sacrifice who is the king. He is our great high priest.
Jesus is a high priest outside of the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. Why? Why is he following after the effect, the lineage of Melchizedek, who is the priest of the Most High God and the King of Salem? Why wasn't Jesus a Levite or a priest from that tribe? Because it was corrupt. It had gotten involved in the politics of the land, and that's ultimately what got Jesus crucified. Remember? That the priesthood was rarely or barely, I should say, anything more than politicians by the time of Jesus. And he was not a Levite. And he was not the high priest of Jerusalem in his day, one that had purchased his office, one who had used money and influence to get that office. Jesus is the great high priest who overturned the tables in the temple because it was so corrupted. He's outside the Levitical priesthood, but he's not without authority. It comes from this man, Melchizedek. What a name. It means Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And listen about this man, Melchizedek. It says in Hebrews, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under that the people received the law, what further need would have there been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named in the order of Aaron. For where and when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. (laughs) No one did what Jesus did. He came from the tribe of Judah, and yet unlike those who had come from the tribe of Levi, Jesus was a priest. The others were from the tribe of Levi, but Jesus was not, and yet he's not without precedent. We read about about his precedence in the man Melchizedek. Now, Usually, priesthood and politics should never mix, right? You probably agree with me there. The idea of separation of church and state that I've heard a lot of angst about and people up against really isn't that bad of a thing. Unless the government is central in its um, dedication to God, our Father, Really, I think there should be a separation of church and state because politics and the priesthood do not mix according to the law of Moses and according to every king that existed in the history of Israel. Even David, you would think he'd be a priest, right? A man after God's own heart, even David 
wanted to go into the holy place. He loved the tabernacle, but he could not be a priest. Ask Uzziah, like we mentioned last segment. Trying to be both a priest and a politician will eat you up. That's what my dad says, and it's true. (laughs) He got eaten up by leprosy. Priesthood and politics will eat a person up. Nothing wrong with either of them necessarily on their own. Nothing wrong with the priesthood. Nothing wrong with politics in and of itself without mixed motives and rotten uh, hearts. But putting the two together does not mix. That's why God forbade the combination of anyone being a prophet, priest, and king. Now, my dad noted it's true. In the Bible, there were prophets and kings, such as David. And there were prophets and priests, such as Samuel. But no one could ever be a king and a priest. See? No one could be a king and a priest. Church and state separated, even in and under the rule of God. So until Jesus returns, it's not a bad thing to have separation of church and state. Not a bad thing altogether anyways. Except for one. Who lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus. Jesus, our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus, the king of kings, both the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, Jerusalem. And we read here in the book of Hebrews, listen to this, this is interesting. So how great this man was to whom Abraham gave a tenth of his spoil. So this man Melchizedek, a picture of Jesus to say the least. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these were also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one to whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Ha! So the writer is saying that even Levi and his descendants paid tithes to Melchizedek, this picture of Jesus, both king and priest. Even Levi, who would be the priesthood in years to come after that experience of Melchizedek, And Abraham, some 500 years later, Levi would set 
the standard as being priests. But even he bowed down. His descendants bowed down because Abraham bowed down. In other words, they were in Abraham. They were a part of the lineage of Abraham, so they bowed as well. What a, what a, I don't want to say a stretch, what a pull that Abraham's bowing affected his descendants 500 years later. So that even the Levites, who were descendants of Abraham, would bow down. The Levites would bow down. The priests would bow down because hundreds of years before they existed, the Levites, Abraham, the grandfather of Levi, bowed down to Melchizedek. And it reminds me how, as parents, dad and mom, even if you're a grandparent, how we affect our lineage. Who we bow to, whom we bow down to, will definitely affect to whom our children bow down to. Not that they're saved because we're saved. Everyone has to be saved on their own, John chapter 1 says. But there's definitely lineage and legacy and power when you as a parent bow down to Melchizedek, better known to us as Jesus Christ. And so by bowing even today and worshiping even today, you are affecting the destiny, the fate, the spiritual reality for your children and their children and Lord willing, Lord, should the Lord tarry their children as well. Just as Abraham affected his descendants some 500 years later, even generations Later, it says, Levi bowed down because Abraham did. We'll be right back. soul again just to find what I've become I thought that I'd find something beautiful or some trophies that I've won a little better than I was before but still I'm rotten to the core Without your sweet, sweet love Without your sweet, sweet
Let me to my own device I'd fall out on my face Cause I'm no better than I was before I'm still rotten to the core Without your This, get this, you already know this, but get it again. (laughs) You cannot be mostly dead to sin. In Romans 6, it says in the same way Jesus Christ died, we have also died to sin. In the same way, meaning... How Jesus died, we also died. You are now dead to being a sinner. See, that's cool to remember. I think a lot of times we think I'm trying to overcome sin or grow out of sin or I'm dying to sin. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that in and of itself because that's also true. We are still on this journey I don't think you're perfect and I'm not perfect. So we are still in that sense, dying to sin, but from our father's perspective, because of the work of his son, Jesus, listen, if Jesus died to produce people who never sinned ever again, he failed. I have never seen that. But if Jesus died to produce people who will not be punished for their sin, he has succeeded brilliantly, perfectly. Praise Jesus. Praise him that he has not yet, although the day will come, produced people who have never sinned, but he has 
produced people who will not be punished for their sin. That is why there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. It is the gateway to life in the spirit. No condemnation because in Romans 8, after Paul says that very thing, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk verse after verse about life in the spirit. The spirit comes to you according to your understanding that you are not condemned. Pow! Praise God. I love it. So, again, again, Jesus, Jesus didn't die so that we might never sin again, but we are yet dead to sin. How can that be? Because we're dead to sin as a noun, not as a verb. Read that. Look it up yourself. I, I, I go ahead and give you permission to look up Romans, look up the word sin, and see how often it's used as a verb. It's never used as a verb in connotation with our salvation or our state of being. It rarely uses a verb at all. It's always spoken of as a noun. Why? Because it's not what I do, it's who I am. I am a sinner, but not any longer. Now I am righteous. We don't learn. Listen, I love this. We don't learn to die to sin. You don't, either you are dead to sin or you're not. It's not an activity or a process. You are dead to sin the moment you receive Jesus as your Christ. Wow, God, I, I, I know the real me. I'm aware of who I am. Like Paul, I would say about myself, I am the chiefest of sinners. But God, you are so generous. You're, you're so benevolent. You're so gracious that you don't see me like that. You see me in your son, Jesus Christ. I'm robed in his righteousness. Amazing, amazing grace. You are a good, good father.
guy named John Corson brought up something on a Thursday night that has captured my imagination. He said that there could be the case, in fact, it seems like it would be biblical to say, that while God our Father knows everything about you, Jesus does not. I don't know if my dad put it in exactly those words, but I think they are. And I think he would agree that that's what he said. Let me explain. God, the father has omniscience perfectly. He knows the first from the last. He's not confined to time. He is not learning as he goes. Jesus chose to submit himself as God to God in coming to this earth and being confined to time as we are, to a human body as you have. And as a result, Jesus would say there were things he did not know. He did not know when God would restore all things as they were in the Garden of Eden. He says only the Father knows that. And so Jesus chose to take upon himself the aspects of humanity, not only physically in his body, but also mentally in terms of not knowing the future, not being omniscient. He chose that. Not he wasn't confined to that. He chose that as our wondrous and our likely one who's like us, Savior, Messiah. And it could be, in fact, I believe it is the same way now, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, his, our Father, and is waiting that moment when God says, go, restore the kingdom, rapture the church, take over the world, heaven and earth. But until then, Jesus has chosen to be like you and me and to learn to grow, if you would, in that sense. What does that mean? It means that while God, your Father, and the God, the Spirit who lives within you, knows all things, even before you say them, Jesus is, quote, learning. Do you get that? Maybe you don't even agree with it yet, but you will if you think about it. That Jesus is learning about you 
When you pray, he is learning things, listening, relating. That's Jesus. That's our Lord. That's God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is relating to you so that when you pray, he is saying, really? That's so. That's how you feel. Doesn't that change then how you view prayer? Not simply talking to God the Father who knows all things and God the Spirit who lives within you and knows about you, but also God the Son who is seated at the right hand of the Father and is waiting to listen to what you have to say. Pretty amazing. I love God. I love the aspects of the Trinity. I have a lot to learn. I can't wait to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's good because it seems like in many ways, Pete, this guy, me, for whatever it's worth, I'm starting over. I've had to. After this brain surgery I had, it really has set me back, quote unquote, but I know that in setting me back, it's actually moving me ahead. No pun intended, ahead. But the Lord is showing me other things, new things. And yeah, I go through my notebooks to see what I used to know. <laughs> oh yeah, not that I don't even say, oh yeah, I go, oh really, that's interesting when I read through my notes. <laughs> but he's also showing me things about himself that are very simple, but they change my life and they change my heart. And he will do the same. He does the same for you. God bless you. God bless you with his grace and his peace. Through Jesus Christ, who's earned it because you could not, but now you have grace and peace. In Jesus' name. Talk to you tomorrow.